I'm Derek Thompson, longtime writer with The Atlantic Magazine on tech, culture, and politics. There is a lot of noise out there, and my goal is to cut through the headlines, loud tweets, and hot takes in my new podcast, Plain English. I'll talk to some of the smartest people I know to give you clear viewpoints and memorable takeaways. Plain English starts November 16th. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We're going to chat with my buddy Nick Fitzy Stevens from WEI, the Six Rings podcast. In just a little bit, we'll get into the Patriots offseason so far. And we're going to do this thing where we take the Patriots dynasty and we go head to head in a draft to see who can come up with a better team. And Jamie McClellan, of course, the producer of Off the Pike, is going to weigh in who had the better draft. So we'll do that in just a little bit. But we're recording late Thursday night after the Celtics beat the Pacers in a wild game, 142-138 in overtime. And let's just be real about what we saw tonight. I mean, that was a sloppy performance by the Celtics, but nonetheless, they get it out and they get a win. I mean, survive in advance. You're trying to get the number one seed and move on to Philadelphia, right? But there was a lot of sloppiness in this game. I'll get to a lot of the positive stuff as well. But man, you look at the Celtics team now in the third quarter. Since the start of January, I don't know what's going on. So entering tonight, they had been neutral in the third quarter. So 16th in the NBA in the third quarter since the start of January. After tonight, of course, they have now been outscored in the third quarter by seven points because they lost this quarter. Pre-January, they were plus 67 in the third quarter. That was the fourth best in the NBA. And they start off that third quarter tonight. They're just outscored. 11 to 2. I just don't know what's going on. Like, what's going on after halftime here? It doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, right away you get Turner has an offensive rebound and a putback. By the way, Turner just went completely off tonight. Then they just leave Buddy Heald for a wide open three. Halliburton, a direct line drive to the basket. Then he shook Al for an easy bucket. So it just felt like to me that the Celtics, for whatever reason, coming out of halftime, I felt like, okay, this is going to be a blowout in the second half. They were kind of going through the motions in the first quarter, and then they really turned it up in the second quarter. And I felt like coming out of halftime, they'd blow this team out. And it just, quite frankly, it didn't happen, unfortunately. And they found themselves in a real battle. 
The other thing that I mentioned, and this goes back to the sloppiness of the game from a Celtics perspective, they were just not dialed in defensively. We can acknowledge that, right? I mean, I get it was overtime, but they gave up 138 points. And the big thing to me is they were giving up wide open threes. So in this game tonight, just in regulation, they gave up 23s, 46.5% in regulation did the Pacers shoot from three-point territory. So on the year, the Rockets give up the most threes per game at 14.4. The Celtics gave up 20 in regulation, and they've been good all season long in terms of limiting teams from deep. They give up just 11.6 makes per game, six best in the NBA. So tonight, I just add this up to the Celtics. Maybe this is just, hey, first game after the All-Star break, you're playing in Indiana. It's an early start time at 7 o'clock, and you're looking at Philadelphia coming up on Saturday night. Maybe that's what it was, because clearly... The Celtics defensively, they were just not locked in whatsoever in this game. The one thing they were locked into in terms of the scouting report was the offensive rebounds. So if you look at Indiana on the season, they've been one of the worst teams in the NBA in terms of giving up offensive rebounds, 12.1 per game. That's 29th. And the Celtics in this game tonight had 20, including a couple of big ones late in this game. All right. So that was the one thing they were dialed into. Hey, Indiana can't rebound on the defensive end of the floor. Let's attack the glass. They certainly did that. But... To me, just a couple of things that stuck out. So in the fourth quarter, Aaron Neesmith ripped Marcus Smart. He went down the court the other side. The Pacers take a 116-114 lead. And then after the timeout, Joe Mazzola takes a timeout because things are getting a little dicey for the Celtics, which I love. Take the timeout. He draws up a perfect play that gets Jalen Brown a wide open three. So the Celtics take back the lead 117-116. to and here's the interesting note on Missoula. As much as we've sort of shit on at times his timeout usage, he's actually been really good out of timeouts. The Celtics are averaging 1.23 points per possession after timeouts this season. That's number one in the NBA. And you saw it there. Like when he actually calls these timeouts, he's pretty good at dialing things up. Oh, one other note on that fourth quarter. Did you notice with about three minutes left, Missoula like went after the ball like on the sideline? I don't know what he was doing. It looked like he thought he was in the game. Scal was dying on the broadcast. He was like fighting for the ball. It was a strange thing to witness. But anyway, how the Celtics closed the fourth quarter was kind of sloppy, right? Jalen got fouled on a three. He missed two out of three. So the Celtics have at that point a 125-123 lead. That was an opportunity to extend that lead. He misses two out of three. Remember, this happened against the Knicks, too, when he missed those two free throws, and Julius Randle was sort of laughing at him. It's just something to keep in the back of your mind. Jalen Brown down the stretch of these games, clutch free throws. He's not hitting them. We've seen it on multiple occasions now. And then with 141 left in the game, he just reaches on Halliburton for no reason. You put him at the free throw line. That, to me, made no sense. And then they tie the game up at 125-125. So he misses two out of the three free throws, and then that happens right after that. Now, Jalen played well in totality tonight, but just a couple of mind-numbing plays late. And then Tatum down the stretch when it's 125-125. He missed a layup, and then the next position, he turns it over. He just got up in the air, and he threw the ball away. It just, he... Got out of control, something we haven't seen much from Tatum this year. And then on the next play down the court, when the game's tied 125-125, Jalen throws it way over Al Horford's head. I'm like, what the hell is he doing? I mean, it was just sloppy down the stretch from your two-star players. Luckily, the Celtics get a stop at the end, but you needed a stop at the end of regulation just to get into overtime because of some of these turnovers late from both Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. So all in all, I thought it was a sloppy night. Now, in overtime, in fairness, I thought... Hey, they should put Derek White out there because Marcus Smart is not playing particularly well tonight. And right away, I felt good about that because first possession, Smart flopped trying to get a foul on Turner, which it just, it was inexcusable. Like, 
Halliburton's out on the other side of the court on the left wing and Tatum's on him and basically Smart just flops and then Turner easily gets to the basket and Halliburton finds him on a cut and Jalen has to commit the foul. He picks up his fifth foul of the game and they take a 127-125 lead to begin that overtime period. Just not a very smart play by Marcus Smart whatsoever. But then after that, Smart gets in the post, makes it 127-127, which Marcus Smart is really good in the post. Then he gets... A three-point foul on Matherin, and Matherin then gets a tee, so Tatum hits the technical foul, and Smart hits three three um, free throws, and the Celtics take the lead there, and then he hits a runner after that. So I felt like an idiot after tweeting out, hey, maybe put Derek White in the game instead of Marcus Smart, but Smart was really good in overtime, to his credit. A couple of big plays late from Tatum were exceptional, too, where he was just getting to the free throw line late. And by the way, so Tatum... Early in this game, he was kind of holding his wrist, and he's been taping that wrist all season long, where he just sort of went airborne and didn't really have a chance to protect himself falling. And not one of his best nights in terms of the efficiency, but you look at some of what he did late, he found Brogdon for a wide open three to make it 124-120. With the score 138-138 in overtime, he gets to the free throw line, and we talked with Drew Hanlon about this last week, how important it is for Tatum to get to the free throw line, and he did it again tonight that thing where he basically puts the ball out, puts his arms out, extends his arm to sort of bait the defense into following him. He gets to the free throw line to give the Celtics a 140-138 lead. And then maybe the biggest play of the night for Tatum with the score 140 to 138, Tatum gets the late tip on a smart miss to basically seal the game for the Celtics. So in an off night for Jason Tatum, he finishes with 31 points, 12 rebounds, seven assists, and 11 free throw attempts. So even when he doesn't play particularly well from a shooting standpoint, he still puts up numbers like this, which is remarkable because this would not have happened in the past. It's just another sort of indication of his improvement as a player. All right, so then I would mention this too. One of the things I noticed tonight in the second quarter, the Celtics started that off on a 12-6 run without Tatum. Then they had a 16-8 run in totality before Tatum came back into the game. And that's with Rob Malcolm Brogdon, Derek White, Jalen Brown, and Sam Hauser out there on the floor. So you think about the depth of the Celtics, right? That's an elite rim runner slash shot blocker in Rob Williams, an elite driver in Brogdon, White, who does everything right, an elite scorer in Jalen, and an elite shooter in Sam Hauser. So remember, we've referenced the non-Tatum and it's so often this season, and you start to think about it. That's only two of the guys in your starting lineup, and you put up that type of number to begin the second quarter. And I get it. You're playing the Indiana Pacers, but Tonight, when I watched that lineup in the second quarter, I'm like, okay, they've barely played together this season, that lineup in particular. It looked pretty good. Like, maybe go back to that a little bit more, but it just shows you, like, now this team's healthy and some of the depth they can go to. So, again, Derek White is outstanding. He had a nice finish at the rim where he went right around Tice with his left hand early on in this game. And then in the first half, he was just outstanding in general. He had a nice spin move on Noir later on to make it 90 to 90. Then he drove on Noir, got to the line there. And all in all, he finishes with 17 points, 6 of 12 shooting, 3 of 6 from deep. He's a plus 8. Another phenomenal game from Derek White, even though he didn't play in the overtime, which, again, I wanted to see, but Marcus Smart was really good in overtime, so it's tough for me to complain about that. I'm a smart fan. Like, don't get get it twisted. I really like Marcus Smart. It's just I felt Derek White was playing better tonight, and then Smart took over in overtime, so I got to give Joe Mazzulla credit. He was right. I was wrong. All right, then Brogdon. This guy was phenomenal tonight. Just going through some of the stuff. He flew by the defender to get the end one on the Tice foul. He found Jalen in transition for an easy bucket, drove past Nemhart to get to the bucket again. 
and set up Hauser for an easy three. Just going through some of the stuff he did. Found Rob on the break for an easy dunk. He had a pull-up three off a screen to make it 98-97. As we were telling you the other day, he's basically been the best pull-up three-point shooter in the NBA. The only guy that has been better as a pull-up three-point shooter this year than Malcolm Brogdon is Steph Curry. That's it in the entire league. And then you look at the step back. He had a noir to make it 106-100. He got the open three from Tatum to make it 124-120. And then he had, in overtime, that sick lefty drive to make it 136-133. That was just a ridiculous finish. And then he had the great pass to Jalen Brown to make it 138-136, where he saw Jalen cutting, and he just whipped it with his right hand. Just a really nice pass from Malcolm Brogdon. And he's now having his best stretch as a Celtic. If you look at his... Last three games, 26-4, and 25-6, and 24-7 and seven tonight against his former team. And during that stretch, he's 27-43 from the floor. That's 62.7%. He's 12-20 from deep. That is 60%. He has been downright outstanding. He's going to win the Sixth Man of the Year award. He has been absolutely tremendous as of late, and it feels like he's really starting to fit in with this team. One of the issues you had is, hey, how's he going to play with Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum down the stretch of some of these games because he's used to being a high-usage player? And tonight was one of the best games he's played with those guys on the court a lot. All right, then there's Sam Hauser. How about Hauser tonight? The guy had three blocks. He blocked Nora, then hit an open three, made it 111-102 at that particular point in time. He also had an offensive rebound where he found Tatum for an open three. This guy was tremendous. I mean, Hauser was outstanding. He played limited minutes, but he was really, really good tonight. So another good game from Hauser, which is a great sign because remember, he had that stretch where he was barely playable. You look at Grant Williams in this game, he played just six minutes, which I found interesting. Now, I know that he was dealing with that elbow thing prior to the All-Star break, but he did play in this game. And when you look at it in totality, when you look at Grant Williams, man, like he's a guy looking for a big contract. So that is going to be interesting just going down the stretch of the season to see sort of how Joe Mazzulla handles the crunch time minutes. And in particular, just Grant Williams only played six minutes in this game. We know how valuable he is to this team and a potential playoff series against the Milwaukee Bucks. But I was a little bit surprised to only see him play six minutes. So I got to assume that some of that had to do with the elbow situation. Okay, then if you look at the Celtics bench, so on the season now, entering tonight 21st in the NBA in terms of bench scoring at 32.9. The Spurs are number one, by the way, at 43.1. Tonight, the Celtics, and I get it, they went to overtime. They had 51 points off the bench. And Brogdon and White went for a combined 41. So the reason I referenced the bench scoring at 32.9, where it's only 21st in the NBA, now they've been uber efficient off the bench, is that bench scoring number, I wouldn't be surprised if it's top three in the NBA down the stretch of the season here in terms of from the All-Star break on, because now it seems like Derek White is going to go back to the bench. They had the two big lineup to begin tonight's game. So going forward, it does appear to me that that bench number is going to go way up. And I do wonder how long they're going to stick with the big lineup. I know they love that lineup and they love having to rob out there with Al. It just it's, it's just they've played limited minutes together this year. And with Derek White in the starting lineup with the other four guys, they're basically outscoring teams by 10 points per 100 possessions. That is something to monitor. But just speaking of Derek White and Malcolm Brogdon coming off the bench, I was thinking about this. I can't remember a deeper Celtics team in my lifetime. I'm not going back to the 80s. I'm looking at recent Celtics history. I mean, you go back to the big three of Pierce, Ray, and Garnett, of course. After that, it's Rondo, it's Posey, and Posey was really good. He shot 38%. Obviously, Perk was the guy that started on that team. But if you just look at the depth, right, you take the starting fives. You look at Tatum, Brown, Al, Robin, Smart. And then you look at The 08 team, it's Pierce, Ray, Garnett, Rondo, and Perk. So even if you want to give 08 the 
edge with the starting lineup with the three Hall of Famers, you go reserve for reserve. Like if you go at the top of the reserves, Brogdon and House, you'd obviously go Brogdon there. White and what, Tony Allen, you would take Derek White over Tony Allen because Allen at that point was just a defender and really never turned into an offensive player. And then you look at like Grant and Posey, you probably give Posey the edge there, 38% from deep, but you may want to lean Grant just because of what he does against Giannis, but I, you look at it, two, two out of your top three, you would take the Celtics two guys. Like, I would take Brogdon and White over any two guys coming off for the bench for that 08 team. I mean, look, P.J. Brown had huge games for them in the postseason. Leon Poe had his moments. Glenn Davis had his moments. I would say Davis had his moments more so in 2010. But the high level of depth that this team has, where tonight they don't even, and maybe it was something to do with the elbow, as I alluded to, but Grant Williams played six minutes, and he's one of the best players on the Celtics team coming off the bench. It just tells you how deep this Celtics team is. All right, so just to put a bow on the Celtics, I thought tonight they were sloppy, especially defensively, but they're just so talented up and down the roster. They escape with a win. I would not expect this level of, or I should say, I wouldn't expect the lack of intensity we saw on the defensive end of the floor to carry over into this game on Saturday night against the Philadelphia 76ers, which, of course, is a huge primetime game. I do think it's a tough spot, right? First game after the All-Star break, you're in Indiana. It's like, you know, Indiana sucks. It's tough to get going for that game. Like, I'll give them a pass, but the defensive effort was not great in this game. All right, I do want to get to the Bees because they make this trade. They pick up Dimitri Orlov and Garnett Hathaway from Washington in a three-team deal. They sent away their 2023 first, a 2025 second, and a 2024 third rounder along with Craig Smith in the deal. So I really like this for the Bruins. We knew they were in the market for a left-shot defenseman. And look... We also knew that you would like to add some depth, not only defensively, but in terms of your forwards as well. And basically, you were able to get the left shot defenseman in Orloff and you get Hathaway basically replacing Smith on that fourth line. And Hathaway is a significantly better player than Craig Smith. And you look at the draft picks that the Bruins give up. Well, the first rounder you gave up, you're hoping it's the last pick of the first round, right? Because you're hoping to win the Stanley Cup. So I have no issue whatsoever giving up the first round pick in 2023 like Giving up a 2025 first rounder or a 2026, say, hypothetically, even a 2024, that's way more valuable than this year's pick for the Bruins. I had no issue with that whatsoever, giving up that pick. So, look, it's not the Hampus, Lindholm, Taylor Hall trade, right, right, where they make the deal. You're like, holy shit, like, what a deal. Taylor Hall's on the Bruins or Hampus, Lindholm's on the Bruins, right? But it's obviously something where you look at it. This is a really nice move by Don Sweeney. So, Dmitry Orlov, to me, we, of course, all remember him for the hit he had on Kevin Miller a couple of years ago in the postseason. But if you look at, and look, it's not like going to be an issue in the dressing room or anything along those lines. I like the fact that Orlov plays with edge now that he's on the Bruins, right? I did not like him when he was on Washington, right? Because (laughs) the guy will go right up to the edge and a lot of times cross the line. But if you look at Orlov compared to Vladislav Gavrikov, the other guy that the Bruins were in on, Orloff has been the better player this year, 19 points in 43 games compared to Gavrikov, 10 points in his 52 games. So certainly he's going to give you more on the offensive end. And you look at one of the strengths of Orlov is getting involved in the rush, right? Like if you look at some of the advanced numbers, he ranks really high in transition. But Orlov on the season two, 88 hits in 43 games, and we know he's going to bring some nastiness. Gavrikov, 56 hits in 52 games. So Orlov, a more physical player, certainly is going to bring that nastiness. 
and something that the Bruins didn't have, right? Like the Bruins don't have a lot of nasty players with the exception of Brad Marchand. This is definitely somebody that's going to bring that to the table. And then you look at the fact that Smith just has not been good this year, right? I mean, if you look at it, Garnett Hathaway compared to Smith, the Corsi rating with Hathaway on the ice, which is shots on net, missed shots and block shots, 52.5% for Hathaway. Smith's at 50.5% on a really good Bruins team. So Hathaway is a bottom six forward that can throw his weight around. We know this guy's exceptionally physical as well. (laughs) So I just feel like you added two guys. One is a top four defenseman in Orlov and a depth forward. And I prefer Orlov to Gavrikov, the other guy that the Bees were in on. So I like this for the Bruins. This seems like outside of Marshawn, like the only, like we were alluding to, like you need guys that are somewhat nasty. And it's not like the Bruins this year were going to be in on a big name forward like Vladimir Tarasenko or something along those lines. You needed depth on the blue line and up front, and you did that, right? You weren't going to rock the boat with this group and bring in something that completely changed the look of the team. So you gave up Craig Smith, who's a fourth liner for you and has not played particularly well. You needed depth. You didn't really need star power. Now you have it. And you start to peel back, really, these deadlines for... Don Sweeney, Coyle, Hall, Lindholm, and now Orlov and Hathaway. It just, he adds an impact player, it seems like, every year. Now, Hathaway and Orlov have both aggravated the Bees a lot, as I alluded to, the McAvoys, the Marshans of the world, but you add those type of players when you can. I feel like if there was one thing you were looking at from the Bruins, hey, can you get a couple of guys with edge to bring to the postseason? Well, you certainly got this in Orlov and Hathaway. I really, really like this move for the Bruins. And by the way, I'd much rather give up the first and a couple of other draft picks to get two guys rather than get Gavrikov. When Gavrikov, the asking price at the time, was a first and a third, and I would say Orlov's the superior player anyway. So I love this move for the Bruins. All right, coming up next, I'm going to chat with my buddy Nick Fitzy-Stevens. We'll get into the Patriots offseason so far. And also, we're going to draft the Patriots players from the dynasty. And we'll have Jamie McClellan hop in here and tell us who had the better draft. So we'll do that in just a little bit here. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome into Off the Pike. Joining us now from WEI, the Six Rings pod as well, my old buddy Nick Fitzy Stevens. Fitzy, what's going on, man? How are you? B squared, my man. I am so happy to be here. I uh, To get ready for this podcast, when you called me a couple of days ago and said that we were going to be doing this, I immediately went into a darkness retreat just so I could collect my thoughts. <laughs> I wanted to like emotionally center and be prepared for this draft. So uh I think I'm at my truest emotional self right now. Uh, also, I'm I'm freaking so happy for you, man. You uh, you sound great. You're in a happy place. You're killing it on the pod. Well, I appreciate that, man. So, by the way, what we're going to do here is we're going to draft the Patriots dynasty. So Brady's going to be, obviously, the quarterback for both our teams. He's the all-time quarterback. I wasn't going to throw Jacoby Brissett or Jimmy Garoppolo in there, as great as Jacoby Brissett was in that one game against the Texans. But then we're going to draft one linebacker, one safety, one corner, one D lineman, one DN, two offensive linemen, two weapons, receivers, or tight ends. We got to throw that in there because Gronk, and then one running back. And then my producer, Jamie McClellan, he's going to 
to tell us who had the better team. And I mean, look, Jamie may be wrong, but I think I'm probably going to win this Fitzy, even though like, mm-hmm. I mean, I am kind of intimidated just because you are like the ultimate super fan. I mean, you hosted one of the go away events, right? For the Patriots when they were going to one of the Super Bowls. Yeah, uh, the Super Bowl 53 rally at the stadium was one of the absolute highlights of my life, let alone super fandom. Um, I got to go with the team down to Atlanta that week as well and produce some content for Patriots.com. And we had a party in Atlanta that had like 5,000 people on stage, country band, uh, Mr. Craft, et cetera. But the rally in the stadium back in the good old days, you know, when you used to just like set your calendar and clock around like, okay, wake me when it's the AFC championship. Uh, yeah. who's, dri- who's driving to the rally in the stadium? Who's putting <laughs> out the chairs on the duck boat parade? Where are we going afterwards? There's no public restrooms. There were 35,000 people in the stadium that day. Holy and, shit. Uh, dude, it was insane. I brought my oldest son, Thomas. Yeah, three guesses who I named him after. And we- <laughs> <laughs> and so we we get there and like Blue Man Group are on stage. And then it's me and Brian Mori, who used to be executive director of the Patriots Hall of Fame, presented by Raytheon. And uh, they were like, OK, so what's going to happen is we'll have players come up, cheerleaders will be like going to have to, you guys do about six to eight minutes, mostly scripted, a little vamping. And then um, we'll get the fans out of there because it's cold. Uh, crowd is massive. Turns out players, Brady, Hightower, ownership, everybody was late. I had to vamp and do approximately 35 to 40 minutes on stage in like 20 degree temperatures in a jam filled Gillette Stadium. And it was, I got to tell you, awesome. Only to be outdone by when they let me ride one of the duck boats. Oh, you were on a duck boat? I never knew that. Yeah, dude. I um, I was on Duck Boat 20, a.k.a. Patriots.com and all the web guys. <laughs> I was behind like I was behind one that had like John Simon, um, all like the all the backup defensive players, just these absolute massive brohemoths. And so. Every time a Bud Light was thrown or like a fireball shot or a McGillicuddy that missed their boat, I would catch it and then I would put it away and then put on a show for the crowd. I want you to know, Barrett, I went five for five on my beverages that day. Didn't miss a single beverage thrown my way. Unreal. Pretty decent buzz. Uh, (laughs) It was it was it was it was surreal because if you remember the weather that day, the last Tom Brady Super Bowl parade of the six. That, you know, that we were able to enjoy over that double dynastic run. The weather that day was like 58, 59. It was crazy warm on that Tuesday. And I remember we get on the boats and we take off and we start to turn right onto Mass Ave. And you hear this noise like this, just this parabolic echo of like screaming and cheering. And it almost sort of sounds like the, the faint distant echo of kind of like a horror movie or something like out of War of the Worlds. But instead, like you turn and you see it is just humanity for eight miles. And it's just 12s and 87s and just people in Brady and Gronk jerseys. As far as the eye can see, kids, signs, uh, confetti going off. And you're like, holy shit, I'm on a duck boat. My God, like I'm literally living out my childhood dream right now. uh, Honestly, non-birth of a child or wedding day, best day of my life. Wow. Yeah, I remember that Super Bowl. After I did a show on EI from 2 a.m. until 6 a.m. So I went from 2 a.m. until the morning show. My and man. We, we had calls the entire time. Like I bet you were lit, though. I bet the board oh, was lit the whole gosh. time. Yeah. And my whole thing, too, I remember, like, my take was, hey, this was Bill's masterpiece. Like, hey, Brady's masterpiece was 2016, the 28 to 3 comeback. But Bill mm-hmm. just, like, destroyed the Rams offense. And eventually they would have to move on 
from Jared Goff. So that was like kind of the Bills Super Bowl. Since then, has not really gone Bills' way. It's gone mm-hmm. Tom's way. By the way, yeah. you're going to be all right, man. Like a wellness check. No, you're never going to see Tom Brady play football again. Are you good with that? Uh, Barrett, uh, uh, I lived a pretty great adventure, honestly. Like I'm, I, I, I'm good. Like I'm, I'm happy that he's not playing any lo- uh, any longer. Mostly, my my immediate take on all of that, and great, great, uh, great point by you, by the way, about Super Bowl Fifty Three. One of the one of the sneaky little hidden gems to that is that you know Fifty One is Brady's masterpiece. Fifty Two, they sort of met in the middle and mutual. Uh, Brady played his ass off. Belichick with Patricia kind of shit the bed, but Patricia actually did. <laughs> You can say the least. I mean, Jesus, Brady throws for 505 yards and three touchdowns in a losing effort. Uh, He didn't miss Gronk the entire second half. They were just unstoppable. God, that game pisses me off. But uh, 650 yards of offense and you lose. What what is this Baylor against Texas Tech? Um, (laughs) So um, but Super Bowl 53, this little nugget slipped out a while ago. And I thought, how about that shit? Uh, So like you said, defensive masterpiece, just shutting down Sean McVay, who was so geeked out. Chris Farley interviewing Paul McCartney style to play Belichick in the Super Bowl. I mean, Van Noy and Hightower were unstoppable. They were everywhere all over the field. And they kind of dominated the first half of that Chiefs AFC championship game, which really may have been the zenith of the Brady Belichick uh, run. But so part of the defensive game plan, they actually cribbed from Patricia earlier in the season because I think the Lions played the Rams and Patricia was able to slow them down with inferior talent. And so I think there was a little bit of an offseason like, you know, tete-a-tete between the two. And Bill looked at some of that and drew from it and was able to completely stymie and shut down Goff, McVeigh, and that crazy offense. Yeah. And by the way, speaking of Matt Patricia, he didn't land that Denver Broncos defensive coordinator position. I, I was surprised there wasn't a big, bigger market for Matty P as an offensive coordinator. I figure a lot of people would look back at the tape from last year and say, hey, uh, maybe we pick this guy up as an offensive coordinator. But now, and look, we're recording yeah. on Thursday evening, so it may even come out by tomorrow on Friday, where Matt Patricia, apparently, there's reports out of Denver that he could be in line to get the linebacker's position there. My whole thing is, like, is there a way to get Joe Judge out of the building, too? Because it does feel like Patricia's done. Like, he's doing these interviews. I feel like he's gone. I wonder what that means for Joe Judge. I just hope they keep him as far away from Mac as possible this season. Oh, no, he is 100% like, patient zero as far as like what happened last year and what you want to keep Mac away from. Like to me, he is like radioactive soil. Keep Mac as far away from him. Keep him only under huddle with and connected to like tethered to Bill O'Brien this entire offseason into 2023, where even before Bob was hired, just getting rid of the fobs, if you will, the addition by subtraction of taking Judge and Matt Patricia out of the offensive play calling structure and bringing in Bill O'Brien, you know, treating the whole offseason, if you will, like adults that that play and, and manage football professionally has been a massive W for the Patriots. I can't believe we're even receding so far back as to give them credit for going about their business like professionals. I, I still kind of feel bad for Matt Patricia, who basically now is like the sad kid, the last one picked in the kickball game on <laughs> at recess on, on the playground because of what happened last year, like. He's really the scapegoat. Now, he should have turned the job down. He should have said, you know, Bill, I'm flattered. You know, I, th- I think I probably could help you do it. You know, like I'll just reverse engineer an offense, whatever. But like, you know, I don't know about this. And and he didn't. And he took it upon himself. So he does deserve some of the blame. But like that last year is 100 percent on Bill. Only somebody with the yeah. resume, acumen, laurels and achievements like Bill Belichick could get away with pulling off the shit that he did 
last year, which was just unthinkable. Um, Offseason feels feels good to date right now. I'm getting fired. It's mock draft season. We got free agency in a couple of weeks. Um, I got my sights set on a couple of guys. I'm sure you have a few as well. Be fired up to hear you unfurl your mocks and your picks over the next couple of weeks. So let's go. Yeah, I'm completely with you on the Belichick thing. And the thing that surprised me about that, Fitzy, I've made this point several times, is do you remember last season, not the 2022 season, I should say, the 2021 season when Bill Mm -hmm. compared Josh to Nick Saban? And then his answer to replace the Nick Saban of offense in Bill's words, like he literally compared Josh to that, was, hey, let's have a guy do it that's never done it before. I mean, that's just unbelievable. And I did at times, like at the beginning of the season, like I was just so fed up with Patricia, like, Hey, what happened to the play action game? And after reading that Herald piece, we realized he had no answers for anything like, hey, in the meeting. Hey, guys, um, what happens if they do this defensively? Um, let's wait on that. We'll get back to you. Whenever, whenever in like and Callahan and Karen Garigian did such a phenomenal piece. I'm not, I don't great remember. Did you, have, did you have Callahan on the show? I did. Yeah, yeah he was awesome. man. that was a great I, story. I, I love I, honestly, I love Andrew Callahan. He is probably the best new follow Best new guy on the beat. Great dude. Uh, And Karen, of course, is just legacy. She is like the she's the queen of the Patriots beat. But uh, that was the biggest F up, if you will, to me, like how in the world Matt Patricia could have said, this is what we're going to do. And that his players said back, hey, so what happens when they react to it and they do this when we do that? And they're like, uh, yeah, never mind. We'll get to that later on. Like, hold when in the history of Bill Belichick, the most buttoned up, detail oriented, game plan centric, fastidiously prepared human on earth, let alone professional football coach, when would you ever have imagined the same guy who tape leaked out uh, it for the Super Bowl 49, uh, do your Josh, do your job video, whatever it was. And, you know, you've got like the video from the coach's box of like, Garoppolo running the same play that Russell Wilson threw to Ricardo Lockett that Browner realized and sent Butler inside and blew up. And then obviously the greatest comp- the greatest play in the history of the NFL happened. Like the same team that did that is this team that came into last year. Like, ah, we'll try. We'll just we'll improvise uh, how the defenses respond to our play calling that we're basically jazz composing along the way. It's mind blowing to me. Yeah, of all people to do that. But yeah, so just going back to what I was saying, like, so the beginning of the season, I was like legitimately getting upset with Patricia. But then eventually I'm like, well, he he shouldn't be in this position. Like, it's completely on Belichick. So, hey, I wanted to get to some offseason stuff and some stuff before we get into this draft. So there has been, to your point, they already got Bill O'Brien back, which is like the biggest move they could Mm -hmm. make this offseason. And there has been a history of the Patriots getting aggressive when they're coming off a for them at least, this is a really poor season, but in general, during the dynasty where they had poor seasons, you go back to 06, they lose to the Colts, they get Moss, they get Welker. 2015, the line's a mess, so they get Skarniecki out of retirement. Even like 2012, when the defense was playing really poorly in 2011, and for a couple of years there, they move up to get Hightower and Chandler Jones in that draft. They trade for Tlaib in 13, 14, they replace him with Revis. Even 17, you go out there and you get Stephon Gilmore. Nobody saw that move coming from Belichick where he gets the best corner on the market. So it seems like they've already sort of started this aggression in the offseason and over the cap has them with the seventh most cap space. And two years ago, we heard about them being uncharacteristically aggressive in the offseason. They clearly did that, although some of those guys haven't hit. It seems like they're going to take a similar approach this offseason. Is that the vibe you're getting? 
Yeah, it, it's the vibe. I'm, it's the vibe I'm getting. But at the same time, like, I think they're also taking a very uh, call it traditionalist, call it meat and potatoes approach to things like Bill O'Brien, uh, you know, the guy who, you know, famously went up against Tom Brady on the sidelines in Washington years ago, the guy who helped orchestrate the greatest two tight end offense ever, who had the stones to say, yeah, we can move on from Moss. You gave me the talent. We can do this. And he kind of like changed the offense for the New England Patriots. And then the NFL, once again, was forced to play catch up with the Patriots. And so help me God, I'll put a dollar in the Bernard Pollard jar for saying this. But um, if he didn't fuck up Gronk's ankle in that AFC championship, they would have steamrolled the Giants in Super Bowl 46. Like that was a team of dest <clears throat> destiny. And that was also the Mara Kraft year as well. Myra Kraft year. And they should have won that freaking Super Bowl. And I don't blame Welker. Um, and so now they bring in Bill, Bill O'Brien again. I think you're going to see. Bill Belichick and Bill O'Brien and the off the defensive brain trust of Steve and Gerard Mayo, who they made a point of coming out after they apologized to the season ticket holders for the uh, garbage fire season saying, we're going to hold on to him. I think he is the head coach in waiting. I think he's definitely mm. the next head coach of the Patriots. That's why they've made such a show. That's why I believe Bill Belichick had Gerard Mayo in for all of the video conference offensive coordinator interviews as well. Like, Look, there's a good chance you may be working with this guy in the future. So let me start opening up a little world to you. Let me start showing you the process as well. He's more than just a you know a week in week out defensive game preparer and linebackers coach. But as far as what they'll do, you'll see the flourishes and updates that they need to make to keep up with 2023 offenses on the defensive side. But I think you'll probably see going back to more traditional and fundamental Belichick football like. First things first, I want them to attack and beef up the offensive line. Like games are won and lost right there in the trenches. Hertz didn't get touched in the Super Bowl. Patrick Mahomes had a clean jersey as well. Because look at those lines played out of their minds. I mean, they had like, to me, the biggest crime last year after like, after you know, the same way Brady's the all-time quarterback in our draft to come. Like, let's say you don't judge Patricia and judge. The, the biggest bed shitting last year for the Patriots offensive line was a disaster. Matt yeah. Patricia, he'd never coached offensive line before, let alone called plays. He abandoned his post midseason, apparently, and just left it, at, you know, uh, left that baby, if you will, on the doorstep of Billy Yates and said, here, you coach it. And he was like the third year assistant. He didn't know what he yeah. was doing. It was a mess. No, you've got to get back. I want I want big tackles. I want, you know, 1700 pounds of nasty on the line to protect Mac Jones, blow open holes for Ramondre and give him the time to let whoever the receivers are get open. So that's your number one thing. And by the way, that is a great point on Patricia, too, because you're asking him to call plays for the first time and he's coaching the offensive line. It just seems like <laughs> that was impossible for anybody to succeed in that particular role. So your number one thing is offensive line. So do you think mm -hmm. they do that? Like in the first round, they go after like a Broderick Jones if he's there from Georgia or Will they do it in free agency or both? I mean, Mike McGlinchey is going to be a very costly guy. We'll see if the Chiefs, maybe they franchise tag Orlando Brown. But do you think they go after a big fish in free agency and draft one relatively high? So uh, Andy Hart and I have been going back and forth on this on the Six Rings pod for a while and doing WEI weekends. And he's he's completely sold on trading for T. Higgins. Just go get the guy. Go get the next guy who can be what Steph Diggs was for. Josh Allen, you go find a a one a or a number two somewhere else who's coming up on a contract who wants to be the alpha dog someplace and you give them a chance to feed and to unlock a quarterback and be a stud on the offense. 
I can buy that, but I'm not giving up the 14th overall pick. This is the last time I hope the Patriots are picking anywhere below 24, 25, 26 for some time to come. That that chip is so valuable. You can't miss on this pick. And, and by getting a big badass tackle, somebody you can just stick there who's a pillar for 10 years, I would not be disappointed if they took Paris Campbell, Skaronsky out of Northwestern, uh, or Broderick Jones out of Georgia. But if we're going to really get frisky, I think with the, all that money, they have got about $35 million in cap room. They can also finagle a few things. A few guys will in inevitably be cut. Callahan had a great piece in the Herald on how to create more cap space. I think what you do is you go after a tackle in free agency. Somebody who's mm -hmm. mid-20s, like Orlando Brown is 26. Uh, well, I think it was, a, was it Jawan Warren or, or what is his name? The right tackle in uh, Jacksonville. What about McGlinchey? Uh, McGlinchey. Who wouldn't McGlinchey's rock solid? He's going to cost about four for 60. So will the kid in Jacksonville. Orlando Brown is going to probably come somewhere near the Trent Williams category. To me, you got an owner who's disappointed they haven't won a playoff game in four years. You got a head coach who's chasing the all time wins record. And you got a fan base that was leaving empty seats that were selling for $40, Barrett, on Christmas Eve. You go <laughs> out, you get a big, like, tell Orlando Brown, who I believe, whose dad Belichick coached, uh, back in Cleveland. So you may have a legacy factor. If he doesn't get franchised, you go find him and you just say like, here's a giant contract. I want you to come in, lock this down. I'm going to send Trent Brown over there. I'm going to have uh, McDermott and Stuber be my swing tackles and learn from you guys. And then you are set. And then what you do is with the 14th overall pick, you say, Hey, look what the jets did last year. I want a Garrett Wilson. Give me the give me the Smith and Jeeba kid from Jackson. Was it Jackson Smith and Jeeba, the wide receiver from, from Ohio, Ohio State? State? Yeah. yeah, he's like he's got Ceedee Lamb, Garrett Wilson written all over him. We don't we don't have that explosiveness, Barrett. Like the Patriots are, you know, a very Toyota, like a very Camry Accord kind of offense. Like they're very sensible, they're very practical. I want a little danger, some power, some nasty and explosiveness put back in. So I'm with you on in terms of the idea of adding a number one type of weapon to this team. Like they clearly need it. And even if you go through like Brady's latter years here, starting with Randy Moss in 07 and then it transitioned to Gronk, they always had that number one option, right? Where you had to game mm -hmm. plan for that guy. And we see it across the league. Like when teams are playing the Eagles, they're game planning for A.J. Brown. When teams are playing the Chiefs, they're game planning for Travis Kelsey. I'm sorry, like Jacoby Myers is a really good player, okay? He's a really good number two receiver, but nobody's like altering their game plan to defend Jacoby Myers. So that's why I come back to this idea of the trade. Now, I think you can actually get a receiver without giving up that first round pick if you transition to Jerry Judy rather than T. Ooh. Higgins. Because now, Jerry Judy, if you look at some of the numbers, like 972 yards for Denver with Russell Wilson last year, like that's nothing to sneeze about, right? The numbers um, uh, against man coverage, he was really good. He ranked ninth against man, according to PFF. Not that that's the be-all, end-all, but 21.9 yards per reception against man coverage last year, which was third in the NFL. Now, he, he also played with Mac at Alabama briefly, but he was mm -hmm. there. And you start to look at this trend around the league. Waddle goes to Miami, right? Devontae Smith is playing with Jalen Hurts. And I just think if you can give up, like I remember the – at the deadline, because it seems like they're going to move on from Judy just because they need draft picks. They have like no draft picks, Denver. They gave them up all of them for Russell Wilson. Like if. Yeah, they recovered one by trading Bradley Chubb, which must yeah. have been a tough parting for them, sending him to Miami, because that guy who I know Belichick worked out at the draft thinks is an absolute stud. And he got a massive contract 
as soon as he was sent to Miami Gardens. Um, but Judy, I remember, yeah, I remember great. at the at the deadline, like the reporting was a second and a fifth. I would give that up in a heartbeat because in a heartbeat. Yeah. Like this guy's a proven commodity. Like, okay, maybe he's underachieved for what people thought, but look at the quarterback situation, right? Like he's been playing with really bad quarterbacks. Like Russell Wilson was bad last year. Before that, who's his quarterbacks, right? (laughs) He's playing with guys that are not NFL, like Teddy Bridgewater, who's like fine. But I mean, those Mm -hmm. are the quarterbacks that he's playing with. So I feel like Judy and the other thing is like he uncovers real quickly, which I think like T Higgins is a really good player, but he's more of that contested catch guy. And the Patriots already have one of those type of players in Devontae Parker. Now, T Higgins is a significantly better player than Devontae Parker. Like, don't go crazy on me here. But I just feel like Judy fits in better with Mac's skill set where Mac, like they want to get the ball out of his hands quickly. And Jerry Judy fills that need. So for me, like that's my number one guy in the offseason in terms of and I want a proven commodity like I, I I understand your point. Like and if they don't pick up a big time receiver on the trade market, then I would definitely draft one relatively early. But I would like a proven commodity there like we see with these teams. Now, it does feel like this is like a new trend around the NFL the p- past two to three years where these guys are getting traded. Right. We mentioned A.J. Brown, the Tyree kills of the world. We're seeing these guys traded more often now. So that's the guy that I would target. I, and I would have no issue a two and a five if it's up to a two and a four. Now, if Denver is that draft capital desperate that they want to start recouping picks because they just hemorrhage draft capital and mortgage their future to bring in Mr. Unlimited last year. Fine. It's a shame. And I know they still have Cortland Sutton and they've got KJ Hamler, uh, who's not a huge fan of Russell Wilson, but Sean Payton can mend those fences. That's not for us to worry about if they're hell bent on moving on from and not paying Jerry Judy because they need the draft picks and they can't spend the money on him. Absolutely reunite him with somebody who he's familiar with, like Mac Jones. I remember the biggest thing about Jerry Judy coming out in the draft was uh, he was described as clinical in his route running. Like he is the most, the reason why he uncovered so quickly is because his footwork is off the charts. Like he's otherworldly in his, in his quickness going up and across the field. And if you can get somebody like that, who can just explode and take it to another level and become a star because he's always going to be a one a next to Cortland Sutton. And he'll never truly, I don't think he'll explode and become the one uh, in Denver that he's was destined to be or believes he could be. It would be a great pick. And I also still just, you know, for what it's worth, I still would kick the tires. And I know there's a contentious relationship and there's past history between Bill O'Brien and Deandre Hopkins, but given the mutual love fest between Hopkins and Belichick, if there's any chance Arizona wants a later day two pick just to shed themselves of that salary while they just correct the books and figure out where the hell they're going and what they're doing, by all means, please bring him in. I would gladly take him and then try to find a, a dart or somebody that can, as Tom Curran likes to say, get open in a phone booth in the draft. Zay Flowers probably isn't going to be available by the time you pick in the second round because he's been a bottle rocket ever since coming out of the East West Shrine Bowl. Um but somebody that can open quickly, a Dion Branch style receiver would be a plus addition if you get a big guy like Hopkins. Yeah. And I just feel like, all right, you wasted a year last year of Mac on a rookie contract because the play calling was so bad. Right. And oh, that's wasted. sort of like the cheat code in the NFL. If you don't have the Pat Mahomes of the world, then or the Joe Burrow of the world, like, OK, you need to surround your quarterback like Mac Jones is never going to be a top five talented guy in the NFL. That's just not his skill set. So. To me, like this is such an important year for Mac to find out if he's the guy, right? Good rookie season. And he had poor coaching last year, but also he did not play particularly well, especially for large stretches. And we know there was 
Look, I understand his frustration, but some of the behavior last year was unacceptable. I think obviously now he can look back and realize that. But nonetheless, so if you're getting a good offensive coordinator in Bill O'Brien, the next step is keep adding to find out if this guy can play, right? Like Jalen Hurts, they added A.J. Brown. With Tua, they needed to find out, hey, is this guy really good? That's why they hired a coach in Mike McDaniel that was more offensive-minded, and they said, hey, let's get him another receiver. That should be the next step for the Patriots. All right, so then the one question I have about the defense, because, man, I feel like good about a lot of the seasons these guys had, right? Judon was good again, and then you look at Josh Uche was phenomenal. Last year, his win rate for, for uh, via pro football focus out of defensive ends, 24.1%. That was behind Bryce Huff, Miles Garrett, and Joey Bosa. That's the list. Not he was he was bad. ahead of Nick Bosa and Micah Parsons, right? Nick Bosa won the defensive player of the year. And like Parsons was the number two candidate for that. But and Barmore, who was dealing with injuries for a good portion of the season, he was eighth in pass rush grade for D Lyman. He was sixth in win rate amongst D Lyman as a pass rusher. So he came on late after dealing with some of those injuries. The one question I have is, okay, we'll see what happens with McCourty in the coming weeks here. I like how he lays it out. He's going to do it like after his appearance on uh, Good Morning Football with his brother, Jason McCourty. Right. After that, we're going to he's going to make his decision. But the corner situation, right? Because it does feel like they need sort of that guy, that number one corner. And I wonder if that's mm-hmm. something they do in the draft. I mean, Jamel Dean is kind of like the number one corner on the market. The guy that makes sense to me, like if they do go with one in the first round, if he's there, is Joey Porter Jr., who from we're Penn seeing, State. Yep. Yeah. yeah. We're seeing Big him some mocks. Yeah. Six foot yeah. two. Like we know the Patriots. And look, they've changed it over the years, but they like to they would like to play press man, right? Like we we saw when sure. the Patriots defense is at its best. So I wonder if they either sign one of the top tier corners in free agency or they go early. I feel like they have to do one of those two things. And I mean, look, you got it's basically tackle, receiver and corner, right? Like those to me are the three needs for this team. I mean, they have others, but I feel like those are the three most pressing tackle, receiver, corner for sure. Uh, It goes without saying the biggest question about the 2023 New England Patriots is can you get Mac to where he was and then get Mac not only just back on track, can you advance the cause so you can find out in year three, if before year four, because this this bill is going to come due in May 2024. Are you going to pick up his fifth year option for about 30 some odd million dollars or are you just going to let him play it out and either roll with Zappy, draft somebody else or sign a free agent? As far as the defense goes to me. It, it it begins with how much do they want to spend on Jonathan Jones and do they believe having kicked him from slot where uh, slot nickel corner where he's been excellent. Hell, the kid is so versatile. He even played 18 snaps at safety in Super Bowl 53, a dominant performance by the Patriots against the 11th ranked def- 11th ranked offense all time in those McVay and Goff Rams. Right. Um, Jonathan Jones is great. But again, for that Jacoby Myers money of 12, 13, maybe up to 15 million dollars a season. Is he worth it? Or do you take a chance that you can find somebody else that you can trade for? Do you hope maybe the Rams decide they have to move on from Jalen Ramsey? And then you try to put the press on him and say, like, come on to New England, work with oh, the greatest juicy. defensive coach. Well, how great would I would love. I know he wants the Brinks truck everywhere he goes and he wants the juice. He's not what he used to be. He's still a top 10 corner in the NFL. He would be phenomenal as a number one there. But it, let's say you move on. Let's say McCourty retires and they don't sign Jonathan Jones. To me, you have to draft a corner on the earlier side of the draft. If you don't do it in the, in the first round, depending on how free agency goes, you got to get him early on day two. And then you got a guy like Jalen Mills, who's in year three of his four year, $24 million deal. He's played safety. The reason why they signed him 
is because he has such positional versatility. And he's not a great number one corner. He's not great outside. He's fine inside. Yeah. But he absolutely could play free safety. And if you need somebody who's smart, who now has systemic familiarity and probably could just slide right over, should McCourty go gently into that good media broadcasting night, by all means, he's there. But that would put an impetus on finding someone on the outside to go opposite Jack Jones. Wow. That Ramsey thing, man. I haven't heard that. That That's that's a take, Fitzy. I like that. That is one hell of a take. So do you think they're going to bring back Myers? Because, I mean, I look at it and you think about recent history of the Patriots in terms of developing receivers. You got to go back to really Edelman, right? Whereas a guy mm-hmm. where they brought back and Edelman, of course, was outstanding for them for a number of years. I'm sure one of us will pick him in the draft here coming up in a second. But Really, the next guy is Myers, right? Where it's like, all right, you drafted and developed this guy, but he's the number one receiver on the market. As crazy as that sounds, I'm what surprised. What a sad market. What a sad yeah, market. I know. Unbelievable. Like, I'm surprised that, they, and I know he's a Rosenhaus guy now, but I'm surprised that they didn't get something done before now. Like, before last season, why didn't they get a deal done with Jacoby Myers, right? Like, I, it feels yeah. like they've put themselves in a really bad position here in terms of their negotiating. Yeah. Oh, he's got all the leverage. I mean, you want to talk about who's got the high ground. It's absolutely Myers and Rosenhaus. Now, Rosenhaus, whenever Belichick wants to get a deal done, he just calls him up and says, what do you want? I got that. Okay, great. We'll get it done. So if they really are going to prioritize Jacoby Myers, and they could have easily signed him up to this point, you would think they may have by now. But the Pats have this weird thing, Barrett, of like finding these, the Udfas, if you will, the undrafted free agents, which they have just been the absolute kings. They have been the... (laughs) They are the absolute best at finding the Malcolm Butlers and the Jacoby Myers and the J.C. Jacksons getting four years prime early. They develop them. They draft them or rather, excuse me, they sign them because they're undrafted. They sign them. They develop them. They turn them into regional stars and then household names for NFL super fans like ourselves. And then they don't pay him. Yeah. Like they didn't pay Malcolm Butler. They didn't pay J.C. Jackson. I think they're going to probably look at like the ROI for them on Jacoby Myers was a top receiver who was near a thousand yards for three years in a row, who said that Cam Newton saved his career. Kids. Great. If he's going to get $55 million for four years, it's probably going to be with the Houston Texans who are desperate to pair someone up with alongside John Mechie. Should he be healthy enough to play this year? I love Jacoby Myers. He's got great hands, top shelf locker room guy, but I can't see the Patriots mortgaging a significant part of the future when they have so many other pressing needs for a guy who let's be honest, is a solid number two or three option. Yeah, I mean, it would suck to see him go because also he's got great chemistry with Mac, right? Like he's the guy that's Love been him. consistent for Mac the past two seasons. But if you're telling me, hey, the decision is Jerry, Judy, T. Higgins or Jacoby Myers, I'm going or DeAndre Hopkins, to your point earlier, or Mike Evans, if he becomes available, yeah. I'd much rather go after one of those guys than Jacoby Myers. No offense to him. He's just not that level of player. I mean, unfortunately yeah. for him. But hey, I mean, I, he's the guy's going to get a big deal. I mean, credit Jacoby Myers. He he's played himself into being the like it's not made up. Like he's legitimately the number one candidate out there. I mean, that the class is the class, and Jacoby mm-hmm. Myers is going to get a big fat deal. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. 
Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddleboards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! All right, Fitz, you ready to get into this draft? Let's do this, babe. I am so fired up for this. There's nothing I, like so many Patriots fans, love doing, like living in the past. Yeah, I know. That's what we got to do these days, man. Tom's retired. That's all right. I did a whole show on Tom's retirement, which is a ton of fun. And before the Super Bowl, I had James White on. We went, Fitzy, you would have loved it. We just talked about like all his big plays in that Super Bowl, which is like all of them. I uh, I loved it. Dude, I'm a P1. I'm a P1. I I think James, I admire James White's restraint and not just exploding about this. Like he was such a gentleman about like the uh, torpid performance of this offense all, all season long. Like he was... He was great on the pod, and I appreciate that as well. Uh, Two quarterback-related things uh, as we kick off the draft. One, my biggest takeaway about Brady, you asked me earlier, am I okay with it? My biggest thing is like, A, I don't have to see him in that mutant uniform anymore, so we don't have to share him with Tampa anymore, which is great. Like, fine, you guys get one with him. Now he belongs more to us. Maybe he belongs to the blockchain. I don't know, whatever. Like, Brady is just a stratospheric alien celebrity now that doesn't resemble the same guy that used to grind and be first in last out and have that prime parking space, but it's all good. As far as I'm concerned, he can never do any wrong because of all the joy he brought to new England. And I can wear my Brady gear again, because like, he's not like I'm done with the divorce between bill and Brady. No longer are they going to be compared to each other. It's just, we're in appreciation lap mode on Tom Brady now, Barrett. So we can just wear the gear, watch the highlights and celebrate the greatest of all time. Um, now, the other question I had for you was, okay, so Brady's the all-time quarterback as we yeah, get into yeah. this double dynasty draft. If you had to actually draft a quarterback, and obviously first pick overall would go to Brady, next guy wouldn't have to take a quarterback for a long time. But if we had to pick between the two, would you go Garoppolo or Bledsoe? I would go Castle. You gotta be shitting me. He went 11 and five. I mean, I know the schedule wasn't difficult, but he wow. filled it for an entire season. Okay. I mean, the guy. All right. No, right, actually, no, the, no, 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 that's I'm, no. I'm, not I only think am I, I fine with that. No, no. Re- now that I think about it, Fitzy, okay. I have to go blood. So because of the Steelers game, the AFC title game where he came in and f- filled in for Brady when Brady went down. So I got to yeah. go blood. So because he won the big playoff game, I got to go drew. I love drew blood. So uh, I think he's awesome. I think he does. Yeah, the, the fact that he's gotten way more credit uh, and appreciation from Pats fans in the past decade has been di- uh, awesome. And he deserves all of it because he was like the 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 bulldozer, the the bulldog, the fullback who helped lead, start the process of leading us out of the darkness to the dynasty, as Jerry Thornton uh, coined for his book. But I, I I don't actually hate your castle take because as Randy Moss described him in the second half of that season, when Josh and Bill trusted him enough to let him start running the offense, he played, quote, hellified football like from that Jets game, that <laughs> Thursday night football loss on to the end of the season. He was a machine like he was. Awesome. Yeah. That's that final third of the season. But to me, I would have gone Garoppolo as much as I love really? Bledsoe because uh, dude, he, he's too soft, man. Like he's I know uh, that there were guys are upset with him that he didn't come back from the injury. The way in that in that one and a half games, the Arizona game, which was a shocking win uh, and the that half of football till Kiko Alonso folded him like a cheap card table that the three touchdowns he threw the way he operated that offense in that first half against Miami. Damn. No wonder yeah. why Belichick was in love with him. 
And I had him on the podcast a couple of months ago now. He told me that like Randy Moss would just like point his finger up like I'm open. Like he just put his <laughs> finger up. And then if, if he didn't throw it to him, like he'd go to the side and be like, hey, man, you know, I was open there, right? He's like, yeah, yeah, I know. Like <laughs> just throw the finger up. It. Well, Randy Moss is always open. All right. So this is what we're doing. We are drafting okay. a linebacker, a safety, a corner, D lineman, one DN, two offensive linemen, two weapons, and one running back. Okay, so okay. you can have the first pick, Fitzy, since you're the guest. Then I'll get two, and then we'll just go back and forth. All right, so who is your Oof. first pick from the Patriots dynasty? We both obviously have Tom. Okay, uh, I got to give Brady, like we said, like he's always had. I know Belichick, when he wins a Super Bowl, usually has a number one corner, but there's two that I'm comfortable with, so I feel like I can let that one wait out. I'm going to go with my top weapon. I have to go with the single most impressive wide receiver season in the history of the NFL. Give me Randy Moss first overall in the off the pike double dynastic Patriots draft. And I'm going to say I want 2007 Randy Moss in particular. What was that? 23 touchdowns, right? When he broke the record, that game against Mm -hmm. the Giants. All right. So I'm actually happy you went that way because I'm going to go with Gronk as my first pick. How about this? Brady... Brady with Gronk, 291 yards a game, 103.8 rating. Without Gronk, 89.6 rating, 261 yards per game. So, like, that's something that Gronk has, like, bragging rights with, right? Like, where he's so much better. And year two, 17 touchdowns, most ever for a tight end. And the way that I phrase this is when the Patriots have Gronk, they didn't lose. I mean, they were, no. I, mean, I get they lost to the Eagles, but for the most part, they were unbeatable when Rob Gronkowski was on the field. So I'll go with him in terms of, my number one pick. And then my next pick, I'm going defense. And I'm going with, I would say, to me, the best Mm -hmm. defensive player of the two dynasties, Richard Seymour. And no disrespect to Ty Law, Rodney Harrison, but I'm going Richard Seymour, pass rusher, three-time first-team All-Pro, two Mm -hmm. second teams, seven Pro Bowls. He made the All-Decade team. And the other thing about him, Fitzy, you would know this, the guy... Mm -hmm. He would have had more sacks if it wasn't for the way that he played. I mean, one year they even pushed him inside and he played defensive tackle. So if it wasn't for like the sacrifice he made to the team, his individual numbers would be better. And he is a Hall of Famer. So my first two picks, I have Richard Seymour and I have Rob Gronkowski and you have Randy Moss. All right. So you are back on the clock. Uh, Taking Gronk is like I knew the the first two picks were going to be. Moss and Gronk. And I'm okay with that. Uh, I understand what I, what I was losing there. 2011, Rob Gronkowski with his 17 touchdowns. I call that prime Gronk. There, there has never been a more unstoppable creature on the team. And quite honestly, you could afford to maybe slouch off on your offensive lineman picks because he may be the best blocking tight end that ever yep. was an offensive threat as well. And that's why I entertain 0%. That's right. 0% of the Who's the greatest tight end of all time? Is it Travis Kelsey or is it Kronk? They're different people. They're different players altogether. Kelsey is a wide end or a tight receiver. What about Asiasi? <laughs> Devin Asiasi, no credit? <laughs> no, I'm still waiting for Dalton Keene breakthrough season. I've been told it's coming <laughs> sometime soon. Uh, all right. Uh, good for you. Uh, great picks. Um, uh, I feel good about a lot of the other ways I could go, but there's one guy I can't let you have. And that's because I've prepared my sermon love letter too. In fact, I even wore his jersey because I am going to be the man who leads the march to the Patriots Hall of Fame. And if not, maybe the actual Hall of Fame for one Wes Welka. Let me wow. tell you, here I am Welka. in love with that 2000. Yeah, you like no, you don't like rings, man. You don't like rings. You like the guys <laughs> without the rings. Wait till you wait till you hear the rest of the draft. Um, OK, <laughs> all right. Ready for this? You well, managed to take two guys that didn't win a ring in your first two picks. 
Wes Welker from 2007 to 2012, Offensive Player of the Year, uh, thir- finished third in 2007, AP2, AP1, AP, AP4, AP1, Pro Bowler six years in a row for the Patriots, and the slot receiver position forever uh, set forth and defined. Like, you want to talk about revolutionizing a position. He was always open. Tom had guys. Yeah, Gronk was his guy. Jules was his guy. Uh, Jules yeah. may be a better overall football player, as his dad once told me. 112, 111, 123, 86, 122, and 118 receptions for Wes Welker in consecutive years. Like, like that's Unreal. to me, Unreal. that's Gale Sayers level. Put the man in the Canton Pro Football Hall of Fame, let alone Pats fans. Listen to me. Put a red jacket on Welker. Get over losing Super Bowl 42. Get over the bad throw slash drop in 46 and put some respect back on the name of the guy every guy wanted to hang with and every woman wanted to be with for those six years. And I would say the best press conference in Patriots history where he said, we're being good little foot soldiers. Bill should. I don't know why Bill benched him for one series. Like that was so stupid. Just play him. Like it was hilarious. Like I hated nine Bill- minutes. It was yeah. a nine minute routine. It was amazing. Unbelievable. We're just going to put our best foot forward. Best press conference <laughs> of all time. Making fun of Rex Ryan's foot fetish. All right. So all right. then that brings me to my next pick. So, I got a good strategy here. I, with okay. the, these positions that are deep, I'm not going there. So I'm going with a safety. And that's my one of my favorite Patriots of all time. Besides Brady, may be my favorite Patriot of all time, Rodney Harrison. Okay. Oh. Should be in the Hall of Fame. Fitzy, what is it? Him and Ray Lewis, the 30-30 club, they're the only two guys that have 30 sacks and 30 interceptions. Two guys in NFL history. Yep. Rodney's not in there. Should be in there. If John Lynch is in the Hall of Fame, I don't know how Rodney Harrison's not in the Hall of Fame. But tone setter. And completely changed that defense. When they brought him in, like, I understand that they were set up defensively before then. They won in 01. But when they brought Rodney Harrison in, he immediately became a huge leader. Like, people were upset about the Lawyer Malloy thing. But Rodney Harrison was a better player than Lawyer Malloy. And for those two years, he was really good. First team All-Pro in 03. Second team All-Pro in 04, the two years they won. It was like the perfect marriage between Bill and Rodney. Like, Bill absolutely loved Rodney. You knew that he wanted Rodney. He loved the way that Rodney like warmed up before the mm-hmm. games and played in like preseason games. So I'm going Rodney Harrison because I think he's by far the best safety of the Patriots dynasties. Inarguably the best safety and one of the great pickups of all time when it was one team, one other team's trash becomes another team's treasure, that he was a cap casualty. And the then San Diego Chargers thought his career, he was on the back nine and he was Dunsky and they were willing to move on from him. I mean, Belichick could never have fallen into a better player, better leader, better presence than having Rodney Harrison. Uh, One of the things I get to do on game day, Barrett, working for the Pats is, uh, in addition to all the on-field and Jumbotron fun, is an hour and a half before kickoff, I'm up in the Putnam Club and I host a live talk show for the fans with former players called Mm. Chalk Chalk Talk. And there's a different guy that comes in every week. Some weeks it's, you know, Steve Nelson. It's a little bit of a throwback, Pete Brock, et cetera. We had Richard Seymour this past season when he was there to receive his ring and be honored on uh, at the 50 yard line at halftime for Pats fans. When he got his pro football hall of fame notification, he was great. Holy shit. The size of these people, my God, <laughs> there's just like Richard Seymour shaking your hand. Like his fingers went up to my elbow. My God, it's just a monster. But Rodney Harrison was there. In 2019, and he was phenomenal. And he just let me pick his brain in front of a couple hundred fans for a half an hour. Great chat. Um, and one of the things that w- we got into was the whole idea about like getting Bill's trust and then Bill trusting him 
all, he only allowed like Vrabel and other ones he thought were smart enough and could handle it. He would let him like harass Brady and like make fun of him and like jaw with him in practice. Other guys, Belichick would shut it down. But like Vrabel gave Belichick and Brady the business. Rodney Harrison did. Ty Law. Like these are the pillars. Like the, the foundation of the double dynastic run was built on the shoulders. As much as we relate everything to Brady and Belichick on the shoulders of Rodney Harrison, Ty Law, Richard Seymour mm-hmm. and Mike Vrabel. Like he's he's I absolutely love that man. He's the best. All right. Who's your next pick? I'm staying offense, man. Uh, I, to me, there is one clear Whoa. cut. There is one clear cut. Yeah, you can build your defense, but you're going to have a hard time shutting down this team. I know defense wins championships. But my offense is going to be badass, especially when I have 2004 Corey Dillon toting the rock. Okay, that's fine because I know which running back I want now. I'm okay with that. Oh, you're sucking up to your regular guest on the show. <laughs> I may be or I may not be. You don't know. I may be or I may not be. All right, dude, so- I mean, inarguably, like 2004, Corey Dillon was just I know he only was with the Pats for three oh, seasons, unreal. but my God, I mean, the way he went after it that season was ridiculous. How, how many rushing yards do you have total? He had 1635 yeah. rushes, 12 touchdowns, just an unstoppable. It was the it's, you know, the the best running back that ever has worn a Patriots jersey since Tom Brady and Bill Belichick took over. All right, so I'm continuing with my strategy where there is a big fall off after this particular player at this position. So I'm going to take Vince Wilfork, four time All Pro, one first. Wait, time. he's a D line. He's a D line. Yeah, D line. One D N, one D line. Who's your defensive end? Richard Wilf- Seymour. He's he's about as much a defensive end he's as you're DN. an NBA set. Oh. Four three D end. Let's oh, go. You're killing, you're I, I got Wilfork. All right. On a technicality. On yeah. a technicality. Damn it. All right. I really did kind of slip up on that one, didn't I? Yeah. Who's next for you? Oh, wow. You got me on that one. All right. Fine. Okay. So fine. Good for you. Now my defensive lineman's not going to be nearly as good as yours. Okay. I can live with that because once again, my offense is coming for you. Give me offensive lineman. I think the best offensive lineman. And again, we're going with the no rings club. I'll take Logan Mankins. Yeah. Nah, that that's the right pick for offensive lineman. That's definitely the best. First off the board. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, I mean, it, so many All-Pros for him throughout his career. Six-time All-Pro and seven Pro Bowls. He made the All-Decade team of the NFL, so that's that's a good pick. I like that pick for you. That's the guy that I would take first in terms of the offensive line as well. All right, so I'm going to go to corner because this is – I think there's two guys you can take here. I mean, technically, you yep. take Revis, but he only played for a year. I'm going to go with Gilmore over Ty Law, and wow. the reason for that okay. is he had the DPOY. Defensive mm-hmm. player of the year in 19, even though some people in Los Angeles didn't think he should have won it. Six interceptions that year. He was absolutely outstanding. And again, when the Patriots have a great corner, they win Super Bowls. So I'm mm-hmm. going with Stephon Gilmore for my corner. Yeah. You know, Brian, I got to tell you, of the various Patriots games that I wish I could somehow uh, get the men in black red light poof machine to just take the memory away. Having been in the stands for the final game, the final regular season game of Tom Brady's career, that Miami post-Christmas loss where they gave up 75 yards to Ryan Fitzpatrick in the final three minutes and Gesicki caught the ball over Patrick Chung, et cetera. The fact that like Devontae Parker, now a New England Patriot. Oh, ate, you're trying to belittle my team right now for one ate bad his game. Lunch, ate his lunch yeah. that day. Like I'm still like scarred from watching that. It was like Gilmore was hung over or just like, wasn't ready that day. Like the Devonte Parker's best day had to come at the expense of the page. Oh, I was awful. It was a 
Very, very, very rough day. Um, no, and he was awesome, dude. I mean, he kind of earned that player of the year that year, but at the same time, had a couple solid seasons for the Patriots, but he was, and I don't need to take him now, so I'm not going to worry about that. I got to get on, I got to get on the linebacker train now because you're just robbing me of all the quality defensive linemen. I'm going to go, actually, I'm going to go, I'm going to run to linebacker at this point. I want Mike Vrabel. That was going to be my pick too. That's a good pick. Just so versatile. I was reading today, like when I was getting ready for this, he's the only player to have, what was it? Two touchdown catches and a sack in the same game. Yep. <laughs> two. <laughs> Still lives under the skin of our buddy Christian Ford. <laughs> yeah, that's insane. I mean, that's absolutely insane. All right. So then I'm going to go offensive line since I haven't mm-hmm. taken an offensive lineman yet. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about Joe Tooney, who was obviously great for this team, two-time All-Pro, although one of those is with the Chiefs. But yep. I'm going to beef up the tackle position to protect Brady. I'm going to go with Matt Light. Solid. 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 You got to have, you got to have, I mean, there's no stipulation. One has to be guard center. Yeah. One has to be tackle. I mean, if I wanted to, I could play Mankins a tackle because he subbed in in 2012, a couple of times when Nate Solder was out. And Oh, by the way, in case anyone at home doesn't know this, he was playing that entire season on a torn ACL. Yeah. That guy's nuts. He's absolutely he's, nuts. And he's the nicest man in person that you may ever meet, but he right. knows where the switch is. And that's what makes him a, a ferocious, ferocious player. All right, so I got Vrabel. I'm going to go, you know what? I'm going to go defensive end, Willie McGinnis. That's a good one. Most sacks in the history of the postseason. Solid Mm -hmm. pick, solid pick. But I will say, not close to Seymour in terms of who he was as a player. But definitely, I mean, I didn't mean to belittle Willie McGinnis. I mean, the guy's an unbelievable Patriot. He's a great all-time Patriot. So, I mean, tremendous pick there for you, Fitzy. All right. So then I'm going to go to the linebacker position as well. I thought about going Hightower just because he had Mm -hmm. so many big time plays for this team. When you think back to tackling Marshawn Lynch on first down, everybody forgets about that because of the Butler interception. And then, of course, the strip sack of Matt Ryan in the Super Bowl. So I thought about him, but I got to go Brewski because, I mean, I talked about like the all time leaders of the Patriots. Mm -hmm. Teddy Brewski is up there with. I mean, he may be the best leader. I mean, outside of Tom, obviously, he may be the best leader in the history of the franchise. So I'll go Teddy Bruschi. Yeah, I mean, just like you want to talk about like locker room impact, leadership, the intangibles that don't necessarily count for the draft, but at the same time should factor into the equation. There's no higher character guy than Teddy Bruschi, beloved by all signature plays out the wazoo as well. Sometimes when I'm in a bad mood, I'll just shut my eyes and I'll see him picking off that ball from Fiedler on the three-yard line, strutting into the end zone on his knees, and snow fireworks erupting everywhere at Gillette Stadium. Um, all right, so you already got a safety. You already got, like, now I kind of, I'm just rounding up my roster. Unless I, you know what? I'll go Joe Tooney. It's a good pick. I mean, I mean, look at him now, too. Like, Kansas City, picking up that guy was massive for them getting to a Super Bowl. Obviously, yeah. Tooney was great for this team as well. I'm still shocked that year that they kept him when they had Cam Newton. Like it made no sense. And then he just left in free agency. So that really wasn't worth it from a Patriots perspective. Okay. So I got to no. fill out my weapons still. Mm-hmm. I got to fill out my I'm offensive. dying to hear who you go with here. Uh, I'm going to fill out. Well, I guess I can do whatever for my offensive line. So, okay, I'll go with my weapon. I'm going to take Edelman third in postseason history in yards. By the way, Gronk mm-hmm. is fourth and yep. okay. And 14, 93.7 yards per game, 16, 114 yards per game in the postseason, 18, 129.3 yards per game, and the Super Bowl MVP. And Edelman, he doesn't lose Super Bowls. That's no. Wes Welker. Edelman is, 
Uh, man, if you could combine Edelman's postseason with Welker's regular season, bona fide oh. Hall of Famer, no question about it. So I'm going to go with Edelman. Yeah, and also the only Super Bowl he did lose was one where he was playing safety in a pinch at the end of the game. <laughs> true, true. Yeah. I thought you may have even considered going Troy Brown. When I was preparing for the pod, I went back and look at Troy Brown's stats. He was nothing to shake a stick at or nothing to scoff at. Yeah, it's just the moments with Edelman, right? Like he just yeah. had unbelievable postseason moments. Mm -hmm. So that's no, why I go did. Edelman over Brown. Okay, uh, I'm going to take my cornerback. I'll take Ty Law. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, just an absolute an absolute boss. Like everything that you want, New England Patriots fans, if the Pats do go back into the well and take a cornerback in the first round overall, the way Ty Law played from Jump Street way back in 1995, a pillar of the Parcells years all the way through Belichick. And that's truly one of his hallmarks. In addition to the swag and the attitude, always wanted the number one guy. Defensive player of the year, th uh, third runner up in 1998 as well. Pro uh, Five-time pro bowler. Did you also know this? Technically, his best seasons were 1998 and 2005, the first year he left Foxborough. He had 10 picks for the Jets in 2005. Wow. He's that's pretty no damn joke. good. Yeah. No. Uh, and incredible trash talker as well. I mean, that's definitely oh, yeah. part, part of the Next story level. with him. Next level. All right, so then I'll go with my la uh, my second offensive lineman. I'm going to go with one of the centers, David Andrews or Dan Copen. I'm going to go with Copen just because he was an all-pro. He made an all-pro team. Solid pick. He made an all-pro team in 2007, so I'll go Copen. It's a rock-solid pick. Like, people sleep on the centers, and people especially sleep on cope who filled in after damian woody got hurt and then just locked the position down for damn near a decade he was great yeah. great 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 player okay uh at safety i'll take dmac over chung yeah that's what i would have gone to so you got yeah. mccordy there all right so then my last pick is going to be my running back and that's going to be james white i knew you'd go dylan dylan's a great pick i'm going james white i mean you think about it he broke three super bowl records 20 points. He's now tied with Hertz in that. Three touchdowns mm -hmm. tied for the most most receptions, 14. Go back to 18. He averaged 46.9 receiving yards per game as a running back. Out of that group where you had the pass-catching running backs, J.R. Redman and Shane Vereen, and you can even look at a guy like Danny Woodhead, I felt like he was the best one out of that group. He took it to the next mm -hmm. level. So that's my team. My final pick is James White. And one of the true shames of Mac Jones's time as a Patriots quarterback is that he only got two and a half games out of James White before he got hurt in a game that resonated and reverberated so negatively all through Pat's nation, that Saints game in 2021. Uh, I still think to this day, one thing the Patriots offense needs, and hey, maybe Ty Montgomery will be healthy this year. Maybe they'll figure out how to do it with Pierre Strong, or maybe Bill O'Brien will swing some influence and have Matt Groen company draft somebody. They need the traditional third down back again. Talk about yeah. a cornerstone of the Patriots offense in the Bill Belichick era. Because Stevenson's, Stevenson's great catching the ball out of the backfield, but he was just gassed at the end of the season. Like he was on fumes. Wiped. Absolutely wiped. All right. So that leads me to my final pick. Uh, D lineman, you took Will Fork and you on a technicality sniped me with Seymour as a D end, even though everyone he's on earth thinks he's a D lineman. Um, I'll go Ty Warren. Okay, Ty Warren. Yeah, I was trying to think of that. The other deal, like Pleasant had a good stretch there for the Patriots mm -hmm. as well. Yep. Like, I mean, so, but by far, Will Fork is the best D tackle out of that group. All right. Oh, so no doubt. The final draft of the Dynasty draft, Fitzy has Moss, Welker, Dylan, Mankins, Vrabel, McGinnis, Tooney, Ty Law, McCourty, Ty Warren. I have Gronk, Seymour, Rodney Harrison, Vince Wilfork, Stephon Gilmore, Matt Light, Teddy Bruschi, Julian Edelman, Dan Copen, and James White. All right, so we're going to bring in Jamie McClellan, the producer of Off the Pike, 
Jamie, it's your turn to weigh in here. Who do you think had the better draft, me or Fitzy? You know, this was tough. It's like picking between your kids. You love all these guys. <laughs> um, at first, I thought Brian was going to win in a runaway, actually. I think taking Gronk, number one, you got to take Gronk. Come on. Yeah, yeah. He's got the rings, changes the whole offense, et cetera. And um, definitely a little shicey taking Seymour and Will Fork, but I think that's mm-hmm. kind of uh, with the Patriots ethos, you know, bending the rules. I think Bill would like, I think Bill yeah. would like that. <laughs> Somewhere Ernie Adams is smiling, James. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I think taking Gilmore over Tyla was a was an error, though, Brian. So it tightened up a bit there, and I like Fitzy's offensive line. It's it's a tight one, but I still think Gronk is the biggest difference maker. So I'm going to give Brian by a by a hair. Oh, I'm wow. sorry. Thank Fitzy. you, Jamie. Oh man, I look. You know, Jamie, it's it's inarguable. If you look at this entire list, Randy Moss is the only one that could probably share the same ground as Gronk mm-hmm. in terms of what you did in your in at your position, uh, what you made of your talent. You were a like a, a com- you completely transcended it. Like Gronk should forever be thought of as the greatest tight end of all time. And so, if that's that little extra something, the little qualifier that helps tilt the scales in your favor, Barrett. As opposed to Moss, who's like top three wide receiver of all time. I mean, the goat is still Jerry Rice and forever should be. If it's that close, I you know, m- much respect. Uh, you know, I probably should have gone went wrong too, but uh, here I am still hung up on Super Bowl 42, wishing on some decisions I could make could change the fate of that damn game. <laughs> all right. Well, Fitzy, that was a lot of fun. That is Nick Fitzy Stevens from WEI, the Six Rings pod as well. Fitz, I couldn't think of a better person to do this draft with, so I had a lot of fun. And look, we'll get feedback on this, so I'm sure a lot of people will agree with your team over over mine, so don't feel too bad. I mean, Jamie's just one man. So It's okay. Any which way, A, it was a Patriots win for all, which is what we need more of around here, and B, it filled my heart with nothing but Foxborough joy and good memories. So, uh, for those reasons alone, I'm thrilled to have been here. Thrilled for you as well, man. Uh, Look forward to talking to you soon. Go Pats. All right, Fitzy. Thanks, man. All right, great stuff there from my guy Fitzy. I enjoyed doing the draft to the Patriots dynasties. Hopefully, and by the way, I enjoyed talking about the offseason with Fitzy as well. I really do hope they go out there and they get Mac Jones a number one weapon because that's the next thing. You got the coordinator, now go get the number one weapon. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in at 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. You can email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. As well, thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast, and we'll chat with you on Sunday.